1: Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll begin with a look at how the fiscal year 2024 appropriations process is going. Uh, Can Congress pass all of its appropriations bills on time to avoid a shutdown in September? That's the annual thriller that we have here in Washington. And Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman is going to uh, uh, lead us through that process. Uh, Then I'll be talking to Steve Robinson about uh, some of the latest economic news. And in our final two segments, we'll get some interesting perspectives on the budget outlook and potential remedies that came out of a principles and priorities exercise that the Concord Coalition conducted for a recent meeting of Boys State, New Hampshire. But first, let's get to the appropriations bills. Tori, you've been tracking those. Uh, <laughs> basically, can you give us sort of a status check on what's going on?
2: Sure. So the appropriations process is the process by which uh, Congress funds the federal agencies, the federal government every year. There are normally 12 appropriations bills that have to be passed every year. And right now, none have passed either chamber. So the House hasn't passed any on the floor. The Senate hasn't passed any on the floor. Now, the House Appropriations Committee has passed eight out of the 12. So they're working. Senate Appropriations has passed five of the 12. They need to work a little harder. But I think the key thing is uh, time is running out. There are two more weeks in the current uh, congressional session in Washington, D.C. in July, followed by an August recess. And the new fiscal year begins on September 30th. But September itself is uh, the work weeks uh, in Washington are broken up because we've got several uh, Jewish high holidays. So uh, there isn't a lot of time to get appropriations bills done.
1: So is it your thought that they'll probably won't get all enacted?
2: <laughs> I, I think that's a safe bet. I, I, you know, uh, uh, not a chance that those will get passed in time. Uh, okay. So, you know, they'll, they'll have to pass some a, a temporary uh, measure called a continuing resolution.
1: A continuing resolution. When everybody hears about the CR. Now, when you describe that, I was thinking not too long ago when they finished the debt ceiling deal, one of the things that, that that was supposed to come out of that is that they were going to try to avoid this, uh, this shutdown. They thought they had incorporated some provisions in the debt limit deal that would incentivize them to get their work done on time. What, what's gone wrong there? <laughs> or, you know, is it still possible that uh, those incentives will kick in?
2: So one of the key features of the the debt limit deal was also not a, not not only you know the uh, an agreement on what to do about the, the debt limit which they they uh suspended until January of 2025 um but there was also an agreement on top level discretionary appropriations for defense and non-defense categories and there was the thought that the House and Senate Appropriations Committees could then, you know, just move forward, start marking up the appropriations bill and chug, chug, chug away. The problem is that in the House, conservative Republicans in the House Freedom Caucus threw a tantrum over those levels. They wanted to cut spending back to fiscal year 2022. And then on the Senate side, if you recall, the Senate wasn't even involved in the debt limit negotiations at all. And when they saw the spending levels coming out, they thought, oh, there's there's a lot more that we want to spend, especially on, on defense. And a couple of other areas, so they started plotting to use the emergency designation to spend more than what the agreement uh, allowed for. Um, so now you've got both chambers that are marking up to completely different levels of appropriations for fiscal year 2024. As a matter of fact, the House and Senate just on you know the the, the top line regular base uh, appropriations they're 119 billion dollars apart from each other, which is about an eight percent gap. That's big. Um, so that alone is is going to be a, a challenge uh, that that was something that we thought the debt limit agreement would have taken care of. But it hasn't.
1: Um, so if they all right, so let's assume is as, as per usual, they don't get their work done on September 30th and they pass this CR, this continuing resolution. Uh. They're limited. I mean, there's a little bit of a glitch in the uh, in the fly in the ointment here again because of the debt ceiling deal that they can't just do a CR without consequences this time around.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Normally, a continuing resolution at the end of September is not such a huge deal. I mean, there's usually a kerfuffle, a temporary kerfuffle over what we call anomalies. You know, sometimes there are agencies. So one of the, the things about a continuing resolution is it tells agencies that you can spend at the same rate as you did last year and with the same policies in place as last year. But sometimes there are agencies that need a little bit of a bump early in the fiscal year. They can't spend at last year's rate. They need to spend a little bit more. So they're always, there's always some agreement on some anomalies. You never have, or very rarely have, you know, a specifically clean CR. Um, but what makes a continuing resolution so difficult this year is that, again, the House, is it's the House. Um, the House Freedom Caucus doesn't support the current spending levels, you know, we're, we're spending at fiscal 2023 levels. They don't want to continue 2023 levels into 2024. They want to cut back to 2022. They also do, don't support the current policies under fiscal year 23 appropriations. So there are a lot of House Freedom Caucus members that don't even support the idea of a continuing resolution. Um, there are other things that that make things uh that muddy the water for a continuing resolution uh FEMA the federal emergency relief management agency uh their disaster relief account uh they're going to run out of money before the end of the fiscal year they need another 10 to 11 billion dollars to make good on claims this is the, the 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 agency that provides relief when there are big, massive wildfires, or hurricanes, or earthquakes, whatever. You know, Florida has been hit by uh, by a really rough and early hurricane season this year. Um, so there's a desire for a CR to carry additional money for for FEMA. Well, if you open the, the door for uh, the CR, the continuing resolution to carry you know disaster relief money, well then the defense hawks. You know, in the House and the Senate are going to want to add more money for Ukraine. OK, when Ukraine needs more money, more bullets, more more everything. So it just starts to snowball. Um, and, you know, before you pass legislation in the House, you have to pass a rule in the House that sort of governs the terms of that debate. And usually a rule in the House is passed on a party line basis, which means The Republicans being in charge are expected to provide the votes to pass the rule. But if you've got a bunch of House Freedom Caucus members uh, uh, that don't want to support a continuing resolution, they can vote against the rule. And if they do that, they can't move forward in the House unless McCarthy cuts a deal with Democrats, which, of course, that's. That that's that week is that, that, Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: that's, that's like staring into the abyss or. Right. Uh, right. That's, so him,
2: definitely getting I mean, I think they're going to get a CR across the line because both parties acknowledge that there's no benefit to a shutdown, to a
1: government shutdown. Okay, so no you're not you're not that. predicting a shutdown.
2: No, I think they'll come to some sort of an agreement uh, because at the end of days, you know, McCarthy will make cut a deal with Democrats in order to get a CR across the line. So, yeah, I think I think there will be a CR, no shutdown, but it's the 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 path to a continuing resolution is going to be more fraught than it has been in the past.
1: And and just before I uh, turn to Steve on some uh, confusing economic uh, news, um, if they are still doing a CR, though, they're going to they're going to face a sequestration at some point uh, per the debt limit deal. If they actually I mean, that was the incentive is that uh, if right. they were doing a CR, there'd be a sequestration. And it's a long, long story uh, <laughs> and very, very confusing. But they were supposed to it was, they would actually face a tougher cut that would go into effect in April across the board if they if they're still operating right. under a CRs.
2: So yeah, there was this sort of sort of Damocles, if you will, in the the debt limit deal that basically said if any part of the federal government is operating under a continuing resolution as of January 1 of next year, then by April 30th, there's going to be a sequester 1% across the board. Um, I know there's been a lot of hype and, and angst about that. Frankly, I think that sequester is more bluster than bite. Um, I think that uh th- there are so many different ways to change that sequester and they've got until april 30th to get their ducks in a row on fiscal 2024 probes before that sequester kicks in so even if even if you know all or even part of the of the government is operating under a continuing resolution in january um i think that whatever whatever they do to get that last little bit wrapped up and tied in a neat little bow that last piece of legislation will include uh, language that that makes that sequester go away. So I just, yeah, I, just uh, I think it's more bluster than bite.
1: I always uh, take those sequesters a little bit with a grain of salt, because whatever Congress does, Congress can undo. And exactly. if they decide to let themselves out of jail, they've got the key. Exactly. Um, Steve, uh, you've been noticing some interesting uh, surveys on the economy and what economists expect. Uh what, uh, what what's uh, what caught your attention lately?
0: Well, so as, as we recall, last week, we re- they released the, the new inflation numbers. And, uh, you know, the good news is that the inflation rate has come down from last year's previous high of nine percent. It's now at three percent. So it appears, you know, good news, inflation is coming down. And the argument is, well, look, the Federal Reserve has raised what they call the federal funds rate there, the interest rate that they control. Uh, 10 times in the last uh, year and a half or two years. And so, you know, the argument is they should declare uh, victory and, and go home, that we're done with raising rates because inflation, you know, is subdued and it's coming down and, you know, you know it's all good news. But, you know, the interesting thing um, is that, uh, you know, the, the Fed target, of course, is not 3%. The Fed's target is is 2%. And so we're not there yet. And if you look at the Federal Reserve, or I'm sorry, the uh, the Wall Street Journal does a a survey of economists. And the most recent survey has uh, that the Fed will raise interest rates one more time this year. uh, And then that will be sufficient to uh, cause inflation to continue to fall over the next couple of years uh, so that we'll be basically at the target uh, by the end of, of 2024, beginning of 2025. So, you know, they, they, they assume that the Fed has done you know enough to uh, to accomplish the goal. And as a result, they assume that after raising the rate one more time this year, they're going to begin cutting the federal funds rate um, next year. But that produces an, an interesting sort of, of, of dynamic, um, I think, as I've noticed or, or commented on here a few times, is that we have what's called an inverted yield curve. And that means that the short-term interest rates like the Fed funds rate are actually higher than the long-term rates like the 10-year treasury bond rate. And normally when you have an inverted yield curve, which actually we've had an inverted yield curve since October of 2022, normally with an inverted yield curve, you end up with a a recession. It, It can often take a year or so before that manifests But if you look at what the the Wall Street Journal economists or survey is saying, essentially, they're saying, look, the Fed is going to start cutting the interest rates. The Fed funds rate is going to come down, but it's not going to come down as fast as the 10-year yield already currently is. In other words, we're going to have an inverted yield curve for three years. And so we have essentially a situation where an inverted yield curve would normally be a recession indicator, but none of the economists are predicting a recession. And yet this inverted yield curve is not only going to persist, it's going to continue for the next couple of years and inflation is going to come down at the same time the Federal Reserve is lowering the interest rate. Now, I guess <laughs> I guess all of that could happen, but it would certainly be unprecedented. If you look over, you know, sort of historically, in order to tame inflation, we've had to, you know, push the long-term rate and the short-term rate back up, uh, so that the inverted yield curve goes away, and that goes away because inflation goes up, and you have a, re- I'm sorry, inflation, unemployment goes up, and you, you have a recession, and so essentially, the the uh, economists are optimistically predicting that we're going to avoid sort of the historical uh, occurrence of events that there'll be a continued inverted yield curve. Falling inflation, no rising unemployment, no recession. And, you know, all of this is going to going to appear to work out. And, you know, again, everybody talks about, well, this time is different. And perhaps (laughs) this time really is different, but it it would certainly be unprecedented.
1: Well, you can just look back to the recent uh, burst of inflation and. People were saying before that happened that uh, no inflation inflation wouldn't happen. Yeah. Uh, we had, you know, yeah. licked that with no need to worry about inflation. And uh, and then uh, initially it was transitory and it's uh, lengthened uh, for a while. So, yeah, I'd be a little bit skeptical about looking at a, a bunch of anomalous statistics and and saying that that's probably what's going to happen. So but but we can't know the future. So we'll have to just uh Wait and see, Uh, wait and see and uh, adopt fiscal uh, prudent, fiscally prudent fiscal policies, I guess, as we say. Well, Steve, we'll we'll have to leave it there. That's all the time that we have for this segment. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. When we come back after the break, we'll be listening to excerpts from a principles and priorities exercise that the Concord Coalition ran with Boys State, New Hampshire. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In the next two segments, we're going to be listening to excerpts from the Concord Coalition's Principles and Priorities Budget Exercise. This is something that we do with community organizations and on college campuses all over the country, and it's often led by our National Field Director, Phil Smith. Phil recently led a budget exercise with a group of high school boys in New Hampshire who are participating in Boy State. Boys State is a conference of sorts, uh, simulating state government put on in many states every year by the American Legion. Participants get to simulate different roles in various branches of government. So Phil got the group started by giving them the framework of their federal budget exercise. Congratulations or maybe my
3: condolences, (laughs) you've just become members of Congress and you've been assigned to a special committee tonight charged with finding ways to reduce projected federal deficits over the next 10 years. Your committee is responsible for examining a variety of possible spending and revenue policies. Some of these options would reduce spending and or raise revenues, thereby reducing future budget deficits. Other policies, however, would actually increase spending and or lower taxes which, of course, would increase deficits. So as you and the members of your committees uh, review these options, I ask to keep this realistic that you consider three things to make this a a realistic exercise, and they're listed right here on the middle of the page. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, economics. How will your decisions that you make tonight affect the economy be thinking about jobs and wages uh, in both the short term and the long term could some of the policies that you passed tonight help in the short run but cause damage later or vice versa next up public policy uh, should reducing the deficit even be your primary goal, regardless of other uh, impacts that your policy decisions make tonight? Which areas of the federal government should receive more funding or less funding? And which parts of society will be most affected by your decisions tonight? Do you think the federal government's too big? Do you think it's too small? Do you think it's just about the right size? Basically, do the choices that you make tonight fit your vision for our country's future? And then lastly, politics. As much as we try to depoliticize this and the Concord Coalition is a nonpartisan organization, we don't get involved in campaigns and so forth. Uh, but as much as we try to depoliticize this, there's probably not a bigger political document in the world than the United States federal budget. But what I mean here by politics is, will voters support your decisions? What we were talking about just now, will there be a 30-second television ad run against you? Can you defend your decisions? Basically, will you be re-elected? And this is something that is the hardest thing to simulate in this exercise, because if you've ever met a member of Congress, or if you ever do meet one, you will find out very quickly, they really, really, really want to get reelected. And it, and it drives a lot of the decisions that they make. Now, a quick note about COVID. We've been through a lot over the past Three or four years with COVID and the federal budget did a lot of things to address the COVID emergency but in terms of the exercise tonight we're assuming most of that is behind us now so we really won't be dealing with a whole lot of options uh, that affect COVID. The CBO has projected about two years ago they projected that deficits over the next 10 years would be about 12 trillion dollars so that's our baseline right but over the past couple of years deficits have, deficits have gotten so much worse they're now projecting that we're gonna have $20 trillion more in deficits over the next 10 years. So the decisions that you make tonight will either add to those deficits or you'll take away from those deficits depending on how you vote. Now, some things will be worth increasing the deficit for if it's an investment of sorts, some things might not be, but it's truly up to you uh, as we go through this exercise tonight. Now, it wouldn't be the conqueror Coalition if I didn't show you at least a couple of charts. So I'm gonna show you some budget charts Don't get lost in these numbers. Just look at the general trends. I'm showing you the federal budget from the year 2019. The reason I chose this year is because this was the last normal year that we had before COVID. The numbers got really out of whack the next year. So I want to show you what a normal year looks like. 2019 was a normal year. We brought in about three and a half or about $3.4 trillion in revenue. That's the taxes and so forth. That's on the right. On the left, though, we spent a whole lot more than we took in we spent about four and a half trillion dollars. See that four comma four four seven? If it's got a comma, these numbers are in hundreds of billions of dollars. So if it's got a comma in it, we've graduated to trillions. So you can see we spent four and a half trillion dollars, but we only brought in about three and a half trillion dollars in revenue. So the difference was almost a trillion dollars. We came just a little bit shy. $984 billion was our federal deficit in the year 2019. We spent it on a lot of things and we got our revenue from a lot of areas, but there's one area in the spending that I want to bring your attention to, and that is that red thing on top there. That's interest that we paid on the national debt. So in the year 2019, we spent $375 billion simply paying interest on the debt. That's a big number. That is a very large number. To put it in perspective, though, interest rates were where in 2019? they were low. Where are interest rates now? High. So that number is this year going to be in the $600 billion range, just in that short a period of time. That's the difference that interest uh, uh, rates can have on the interest that we pay on our national debt. Anybody want to take a guess at how big the national debt is now? Yes, sir. That's very close, $32 trillion. And so, and counting and going up, right? And we're, we have to pay that uh, back with interest and that interest is represented in the red on that chart. Let's skip forward a few years. Uh, these numbers were put together by the Congressional Budget Office a couple of years ago, but they looked out into the future to the year 2031. So the same chart, different year, 2031. Let's see what's happening now. Well, according to CBO, when they put this chart together a couple of years ago, they thought that we were gonna be spending well over seven and a half trillion dollars and that we're bringing in more revenue but still not enough to cover our expenditures so we're bringing in 5.7 uh, trillion dollars in revenue so the difference is almost a two trillion dollar deficit, right because we got this one eight eight three that means basically 1.8 trillion dollars so nearing a two trillion dollar deficit these numbers have been updated and now if you look at that red bar right there, see, can you see that? It says $799. So a couple years ago when they put this chart together, they thought that in the year 2031 would be paying $799 billion in interest that year. They've now revised this and they say that it's going to be over a trillion dollars. Over a trillion dollars just paying interest on the debt. I'm not talking about the national debt or the deficit. I'm just talking about paying interest that one year alone is going to be over a trillion dollars in the year 2031. So you can see We've got a challenge in making our federal budget sustainable, and that's why we're turning to you tonight for help. Now, one of the things I've got to tell you about is in the midst of all of these challenges, there's something incredible happening right underneath our noses. And what I'm about to tell you is going to be very useful for whatever you decide to do in life, both personally and professionally. Because if you get into business and you're running a business, you're going to need to know this. You're going to need to know this if you want to raise a family. You're going to need to know this if you're going to run a nonprofit organization, and you're especially going to need to know this if you're running the federal government. <laughs> and that is, we are in the midst, right underneath our nose, of a major demographic shift. And what's happening is that key, and it, and it, rel- and it relates directly to our budget deficits. So, that a key driver of our continued deficits over the next 10 years and beyond is an ongoing fundamental transformation in our society. And what I'm talking about is lower birth rates and the aging of our population both of which lead to a reduction in the rate of growth in our working age population. So what I'm saying basically is we're not producing enough workers. We have a whole lot of retirees and we don't have the right number of workers paying taxes into the system to support all of these retirees, right, who need Social Security and Medicare and so forth. So this is a a giant problem. When you combine that with rising health care costs, and that's a big one, Our health care costs in this country are rising so fast, if we don't figure out a way to curb those long-term health care costs, that's going to be a tsunami that will overtake the rest of the budget. But when you look and you combine this with rising health care costs, these changes will cause federal spending on our benefit programs like Social Security and Medicare to really dramatically rise. But unfortunately, our income and payroll tax revenues from a proportionally smaller workforce will not be able to keep pace. So growing levels of government borrowing and rising interest rates are also expected to push up federal spending on those net interest payments we were just talking about. So it's kind of a perfect storm, to use an overused phrase, uh, that's happening with the federal budget. So with that, we now turn to you and we ask you tonight to help us make the hard choices.
1: The teams immediately began deliberating their federal budget choices with Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris circulating among the teams playing the role of the media.
4: Can anybody give me a little bit of,
1: of a
5: thumbnail
4: on what you've done so far?
5: So, uh, so we've got, do you want me to, okay. So, so far we've gone through all of category one which is general government spending and we've basically gone through each uh, option and we've discussed, well, what are our thoughts on each um, issue, right? So like the first one we went through, that we actually went with uh, him too was expand access to childcare. And we were like, okay, well, that childcare is gonna help um, help help bring uh, more children and more people to the workforce, and that's obviously gonna help us in the future. And if you want it, you can add something later. Um, of course, we know that the goal of this activity is to reduce government spending. But if we're looking for the betterment of the nation, we do right now. We're adding up some debt because we're looking at the future of this country. And to prepare for the future of this country, we're going to have to spend some money.
4: Okay, so, so far you've got Expand Access to Child Care. Uh, what else do I see there? Uh,
5: we have a, we have a, so we, have, we voted to pass Expand Access to Child Care. We voted to pass Establish a National infa- Infrastructure Bank, which will add $25 uh, billion in debt. And then we also voted to pass uh, increased TSA fees paid by passengers for air, air travel, which will uh, decrease uh, de- deficit um, by 21 billion dollars. So, so what? So basically, what we thought there was. I mean, some of these. There were a couple other decreases we could have uh, voted to pass, um, but a lot of those were all very, you know, they're very important programs. Like number six, reduce subsidies in the crop insurance program. We want to keep these because we want to help out the farmers, and that's a very important thing to us and the country. So that'll help the country grow. That's that's you know that like bigger thinking kind of thing. But with increased TSA fees, and I mean, um, you said it best if you want to say it. Yeah, I mean, um, flying. It's a, it's, a, it's really a privilege. So while this, it's hurting the people who are flying, but our mangle here is to protect the working class American. So for protecting the working class American, we're protecting the future of this country. All right. Thank you, Team One. I appreciate right. it. Thank so you so much.
4: Good luck. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm with uh, WKXL Radio, just covering this, this meeting. Um, and i uh, so we're just talking to some of the teams. I'm going to call you Team Two. Just here to ask you a few questions about what you're doing and, and what's going on. Can you give me a little thumbnail of uh, maybe a couple of the things that you've uh, uh, done so far? Does anybody want to give us? a don't you know, got to list everything. Maybe a couple of the highlights.
6: Um, so one of our biggest things that we have done um, is t- increase the TSA fees paid by passengers for air travel from 560 to 825, and we as a committee just thought that was a great way. And airfares are already expensive. Adding five dollars on is not going to affect every person that flies. People rarely fly more than, say, ten times a year. And adding that uh, gives us an advantage that, with the amount of travelers we have in our country that use TSA, uh, we'll be able to collect a lot more, uh, over twenty-one billion, through that, uh, to contribute to cutting the national deficit. Um, and then also, we decided to reduce Department of Energy funding for energy technology development. Um, That was a key thing for us because taking that away is already something that is huge in terms of private companies that invest in that and kind of do the work for the government and the country as a whole because when something comes about they make a point of it. Like Tesla uh, with their uh, research that they have done in other companies. Um, And then Something that we have kept uh, that's kind of controversial is um, keeping access or not that we have kept uh, is not expanding access to child care. Uh, we believe that's a state issue and something that families have to work out on their own and you shouldn't want your kids don't want to grow up without their parents in some capacity and just giving them off to someone else is kind of gonna stutter their childhood. Um, as well as not uh, providing two years of free community college to Pell eligible students. We don't want to just hand out two years of $47 billion to kids to go to two years of free community college to not get a degree that's necessarily impactful and that they can use. Um, if it was something more like a four-year degree, I think we would reconsider it, but I think for now that's our uh, biggest point.
4: All right. Thanks a lot. Good luck with
1: the deliberations. Thank you. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're listening to excerpts from a recent Concord Coalition Principles and Priorities federal budget exercise recently run at the New Hampshire Boys State Gathering with a group of high schoolers from all over the Granite State. We'll hear more after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. Let's get back to the recent Principles and Priorities Federal Budget exercise run by the Concord Coalition's national field director, Phil Smith, at the New Hampshire Boys State Gathering at Saint Anselm College. The participants were playing members; they were role playing as uh, uh, members of Congress with the task of attempting to reduce federal budget deficits over the next decade. When we last left off, Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris was playing the role of the media, asking some of the the group about their budgetary choices.
4: What were some of the highlights of your deficit reduction measures, either, uh, I don't know, raising revenues, cutting spending, anything like that?
7: Oh yeah, we decided to reduce funding for certain grants to state and local governments because we feel like there's already a lot of uh, money and resources available for these state and local governments that, um, you know, anything more would just unnecessarily increase the deficit. So we decided to cut that. We have also reducing or eliminating the human space exploration program. We feel that that's just not the smartest decision right now. Once we figure out a way to tone down the deficit, it decrease our interest and then from there we can, later on in the future, we can leave that as sort a of possibility. Kind of like a hiatus on it, you know? A hiatus. Come back to it, but we need
5: to focus on more important things at the moment.
7: Well, a lot of people argue that the space
4: exploration program has led to a lot of advances in technology that may not have happened without that, um, and that the, v- the value of it isn't necessarily putting humans in space. but. You know, they're, they're anything from, you know, nanotechnology, medical technologies, uh, you know, even even rocket technologies, uh, air travel technologies, that kind of thing. So, uh, how would you respond to that? that? That, you know, some people might say that, especially with, there's a lot of aerospace industry and space industry in New Hampshire. How would you respond to some of that uh, where people will say, wait a minute, I mean, that, that creates a
7: lot of innovation and creates a lot of jobs. Yeah, so absolutely. We believe that research and development is necessary to ensure that we can keep innovating and keep uh, developing as a society. But uh, space exploration is not the best way to do that. We'll still keep funding you know, research and development and innovation, but just not through a space exploration program.
4: Okay. Uh, were there any other uh, significant cuts that uh, you, you think might be a little bit of controversial that, uh, that, that you wanted to, to kind
7: of point out? Well, we were about to cut money from the... Um, Department of Defense but we couldn't decide whether to cut it by 5% or to just leave it as is because if we cut our military budget and other countries found out about it it could um, cause like tension within the government about like like showing like a sense of weakness abroad so we have yet to come to a conclusion about cutting the Department of Defense's budget. So that you're still debating that right now?
4: Yeah. Ooh, I came at an opportune time. So that's a complicated decision, isn't it? It very much is. Uh, So who's on the side of cutting?
7: I think we're more leaning kind from of the side of uh, leaving it as is because, especially with geopolitical threats like China and Russia and um, other, you know, North Korea coming up, you want to make sure that the U- U.S. still has a uh, feared uh, reputation across the U.S. Make sure that democracy prevails. Internationally. Yeah, like a deterrent value. Uh. Exactly. I mean, a lot of tension around the
5: world. Obviously, Russia. We all know what's going on in Russia. We need to be prepared if anything happens, and I believe, I believe leaving it as is does exactly that.
4: What about some of the steps you may have taken to actually cut the deficit, either raise revenue or, or uh, cut spending? Is there, are there any highlights from that that you want to you wanna point out? Student loans,
8: um, limiting the forgiveness of graduate student loans. So we, for number three, which is provide two years of free community college to Pell-eligible students, which was plus 47 and then the limit the limit forgiveness of graduate student loans which is negative 32 so we we actually did both of those so they even themselves out it was about 15 billion dollar difference between the both of them so limiting forgiveness we were able to cut out of the budget just a little bit for the pure fact of how do I word this so to, so to be able to have more room in the budget and for people to take it more on their own opportunity to have their own student loans and their own responsibility for their own education. And then for the less people that maybe c- can't afford a high-end education at a different school, they still have another option for free community college for two
4: years. So that's interesting. Uh, you don't know, usually get a lot of young people who would... Uh, you know be opposed to the cancellation of the uh, student debt um, but you're I'm sure you've watched all this play out like over the last year or so so but you come you come away with it from a different point of view yeah um,
9: comparatively speaking,
6: like comparatively speaking I'd rather like you know if we're limiting forgiveness meaning it's not totally gone but if we're limiting forgiveness on all student loans, but we're providing two years of free community college to anybody who's eligible.
7: I'd rather have that.
4: All right, national security and defense spending. So, uh, so what are we what are we looking at now? Have you made any decisions, and uh, what what are those? We
6: made a decision on reducing the Department of Defense's budget by five percent relative to the 2024 figures. Okay, so
4: that's a lot. Yeah. And why, and why did you decide to do that?
8: So we believe that the defense, defense is critical. However, there is a lot of wasteful spending within the um, defense. So a 5% reduction would basically force the defense to decide what is truly important for defense and increase efficiency in spending and decide on what's important for actual national security versus just frivolous spending.
4: Um, okay, um, so you know that uh, defense spending creates a lot of jobs in New Hampshire. Um, you know, you got the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, and you got a lot of defense contractors in New Hampshire. The, the people who live in New Hampshire but work for defense contractors in Massachusetts as well—Raytheon uh, Technologies, uh, British Aerospace Industries. So um, those are pretty powerful interests. What do you think they would have to say about this?
10: Well, it's not going to go uh, without uh, a bit of a fight, but ultimately we need to realize the the real issue here, which is our national debt. If we keep the, our national debt going as it is, we're going to fall further and further into debt, which will ultimately end us up just paying more and more money that we cannot use for the future.
4: You may not agree with this position. Am I Am I hearing things? Or, well, how, how are you feeling about that?
10: I understand that the uh, budget for DOD may... Be a bit high. However, recruiting and uh, just repair every a lot of what the DOD has right now is uh, not doing well. Even though they may have what looks to be money, a lot of it is a lot of the budget is going towards uh, the uh, required activities and uh, facilities, while other facilities haven't been they've been ignored. I, I actually lived on a military base a lot of my life and. Our house actually had mold because the the housing uh, districts weren't high on the list of of repairs. Even after Hurricane Florence, they weren't. A lot of uh, a lot of the families were living out of trailer homes in the hotel. So I I don't think that we should cut uh, the budget because until everyone has what they need and the military has everything repaired and everything back to normal, especially after the recent events and disasters.
4: So is it that? Um, for those who want to cut defense spending, is it that we're just spending too much on defense? <clears throat> Are we spending on the wrong things? A little bit of both. Like, what's your, what's the root of that for you? So, talking with his about
8: bases, a lot of the companies that they use to um, maintain bases, like the Air Force, recently just bust, busted a company for lying about their maintenance records, and that's a lot of things. Problems with DoD hiring as far as companies go for maintenance, and they scammed them out of millions of dollars. So that's a problem just within that can't be solved by just throwing money at it. It, That just is an inside reform that needs to be made with companies.
1: Also in this simulation were some agitators playing the role of voters, advocacy groups, and constituents who were quite vocal in letting the members of Congress know their opinions about the budget choices being made. One such agitator was, in fact, Concord Coalition intern and Boy State staffer, Kyle Duffy. When you're
8: talking about premium support, you're giving people a little bit more of an option with that private health insurance direction. And if that's a direction you want to take, you're welcome to. It does take a big chunk out of the deficit. But once again, the question is always, at what cost? What services are you taking away from other people if you're allowing this premium support option to go through? I also do hate Medicare, so... <laughs>
9: I don't want that on tape. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well I don't I don't hate the idea of old people having Health care. I hate the idea of the government stepping in, which makes it more expensive for seniors to get health care. I feel like that is not a controversial opinion. What what option are you talking about that you're having this discussion about? Uh, providing seniors with premium support to purchase private health care. We are talking about um, allowing it in order for them to have more choice in their health insurance and it saves us money because it means less reliance on the Medicare system, which means that the government is actually less involved in the um, hospitals' negotiations in that process. So if you take that step, what would the impact be on
4: your bottom line? How much are you saving?
9: If if we do provide seniors with the premium
4: support, we're saving $419 billion in our deficit over 10 years. So. What do you think you think you're going to do it yeah
9: yeah it makes sense to um, provide it, may, it provides seniors with more options than just Medicare which only covers so much to begin with and it saves us money as a government which makes more sense than going with a program that barely works in the first place any pushback any 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 any
7: trepidations about that you're, you're pretty clear about that we got no we got uh, we got unison. We all believe in each other. They make valid points. All right. United we stand. (laughs) All
4: right. So, uh, well, you know what's interesting is that uh, those your age, sometimes it's really hard to get them to support programs like Social Security and Medicare because. You know, you're really not going to be impacted by it, other than having money taken out of your paycheck.
9: Uh, you know, until for many years. It's- Social Security is not going to exist by the time we're old enough to utilize it. It's bleeding money as it is. People and even still people can't survive on it. I would rather have the money it takes for my paycheck now so I can invest in my own retirement program, which is gonna be more profitable and leave with, leave me with more money in the long run than getting twelve hundred bucks a month from the government every month when I'm like sixty five. Um, if I even make it that long, who knows? Um, and, or if it even exists by that point, which it probably won't. It doesn't make sense. All
4: right. So uh, do you think there might be any political blowback to doing something that might sort of undermine
9: Medicare? Um, it might look bad politically from like a soundbite perspective. But if people actually dig into the policy, they will realize that this actually benefits seniors because it gives them more choice for more effective um, ways to get health care. Talking
4: with Kyle Duffy, uh, who is an intern for the Cochrane Coalition, but is also staff here at uh, Boy State. So can you describe to me what you're doing? Like, what, what is your role right now during this exercise? Absolutely. So, all the counselors
8: and staff are playing as the constituents that these mock congress people have to face uh, in their everyday lives when they're making these really difficult decisions about what to do with the budget that is going to often affect people's health care or affect people's uh, job payments or how much the military is getting or how safe they feel in their own home. And there are so many tough decisions to make and we're making sure they know that these are tough decisions and not
4: just numbers on paper. So if, if 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 observationally what I'm seeing is, so you're sort of antagonizing them, like you're you're sort of challenging some of their assumptions um, and how are they reacting
8: to that? Certainly, I think they've put up a lot of good debate as we challenge their assumptions in a way that makes them feel like they they need to question their beliefs a little bit. And that's the point of the exercise, to make them think about it, make them consider how many different stakeholders are at play in these issues, because every time they question something uh, like their own belief because of something we said, I think we've made progress on helping them understand why these issues are so complex. Once we get them going on an activity like this, they do really try and invest their best, and we're trying to push them to to, to think as much as they can about it, um, because it may seem easy, but it really isn't. And we appreciate them taking it so seriously. And I think it does give us some hope for the future that politicians may eventually take some of these things seriously and take hard looks at these programs while also taking hard looks at the effects on people's
4: lives. Yeah, well, it's good to introduce them to it at a young age. So, thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank good you luck. I appreciate yep. it. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. That's all the time we have for this week. If you're interested in our principles and priorities federal budget exercise, find out more at concordcoalition.org. And join us again next week for another episode of Facing the Future.